Good morning. How is everybody? It's good. It's good to see. Always love uh, the the props and the creativity that that Kevin brings to those messages. And uh, for those of you that are guests or visitors or uh, or whatnot, it's just a reminder that for us, we love making space for children uh, to to know that they matter, that they're here, and God's truth is for them as well. And and so having those intentional times in our service are one of the ways that we try to do that. But obviously, this is something for all of us to press into the concept of God's truth and to anticipate what it is that he wants us to hear and respond to today. And we've been walking through this series of Ephesians. We've been walking through the armor of God and all the different things that we adorn ourselves with. And we've really kind of been focusing on one verse at a time. Uh, But today we're going to break it down even more, uh, I guess, succinctly with verse 17 and actually breaking that up into two different parts where today we look at the helmet of salvation. And the next week we're going to look at the sword uh, of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so we're, we're going to kind of break it down. But before we revisit this passage, let me just remind you of the important context within which this falls, because we've been in Ephesians for months now, right? And, and I don't want us to lose sight of the progression that Paul has kind of taken us through through the course of this series. The, those first few chapters in the book of Ephesians, Paul's whole intent was to remind us of what had been done for us in Christ Jesus, right? That, that was his whole intent to to remind us you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, right? That this good news of truth, this gospel of truth has been made known to us through Jesus Christ and that we have now been given this salvation. We have been saved by faith, by grace, right? It's no work that we do. And, And this grace extends to not just a reconciliation with God, but reconciliation with others, right? That Jesus himself is our peace. And so the animosity that we often feel in life, Jew versus Gentile in that time, but we see it all even today. God has destroyed that dividing wall of hostility between brother and sister or the neighbor, and he has made for himself one new humanity, right? Bringing us all together in Christ. And with that, that peace, his intent was that now through the church, this new humanity would be able to reveal the manifold wisdom of God, And so when we consider all that has been done for us in Christ Jesus, we can know and and believe that there is nothing that he can't do. He does immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. And so having established all that, Paul says, therefore, live a life worthy of such a calling. Live your life in such a way that you know exactly what has been done for you in Christ. Make every effort towards unity. Make every effort towards maturity. Take off the old self, your old way of thinking. Put on the new self. Follow God's example. Walk in the way of love, right? Be children of life filled with the spirit that will lead to a life of wisdom and worship and submission. And when you've done all of those things, finally then be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Chapter six, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, to stand, stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, 
And in addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. With that word in mind, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we ask that you would truly awaken our hearts and our souls and our minds this morning. God, that you would enrich us with this truth. Father, for us to truly grasp and consider and to know deep within what it means to be saved, to understand your salvation as it has been offered to us through Christ. For every heart, soul, and mind that might be mindful of it, Father, I pray that we would know it that that much more deeply. For every heart, soul, and mind that might be unfamiliar with it, God, I pray that it would awaken us to a greater understanding of your love and your grace this morning, that all of us may be able to sit under your spirit and under your guidance in this moment, God, and be forever changed. We thank you that you meet with us. We thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. May we press into it this morning and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. All right, so in the 1950s, the early 1950s, there were these common incidences because people were manufacturing clothes that were often uh, incorporating and utilizing highly flammable material. In fact, there was this popular sweater that was trending. They were known as torch sweaters. And, and they were very commonly used, but there were a number of different incidents because they were made out of flammable material. Another common problem was that children in that day were very prone to dress up as their favorite cowboy. And so they had these chaps that they would wear all the time, and those were incredibly flammable as well. And so these incidents led to the Flammable Fabrics Act of 1953. Right? And essentially, it's, it's kind of what you would deduce, that they made it a, a law or legislated that you couldn't produce clothing and fabrics and material out of highly flammable uh, content, right, to try to bring these incidents down. Now, this act was amended later in the 60s to not just focus in on clothing, uh, but also any sort of interior furnishings and a lot of other products that people were commonly using so that you could limit the incidence of things catching on fire. So people began to kind of guard against this and protect against it. Now, during that time period, though, the 50s and 60s, where these incidences were much more common and more frequent, one of the things that people discovered was that folks didn't really know what to do should their clothes catch on fire, right? There there was no understanding of, of what the reaction was supposed to be. Most people just panicked and ran. And so the National Fire Protection Agency recognized they needed to educate the public and launched a campaign and started sharing all these public service announcements. And in order to educate people, they turned to one of the most popular PSA announcement personalities, Dick Van Dyke. And so in the late 1970s, there is a a show, an episode, a commercial of Dick Van Dyke launching this campaign where he's actually rolling around on the ground and he introduces the strategy, the campaign that should you catch on fire, you should stop, drop, and roll. Right? And so from that moment on, those are three words that have been embedded into our psyche. We all know what to do should you catch on fire. Stop, drop, and roll. What they did is they gave us a plan. Here's what you do should you face that sort of danger, that sort of threat. This is one of the common things that we do in life. We know that there are threats that are out there. We know that there are situations and issues that, 
that could create hardship or trouble or peril. And so we often try to develop some sort of a plan to respond. We have crisis response plans all the time, right? Schools plan for fires, for tornadoes, right? You think about the cities that are often in the path of natural disasters or hurricanes. They sit there and they say, okay, in the event of a hurricane, here's when we're going to evacuate. Here's how you prepare your home, right? Just the other night, uh, James was asking me about what are we going to do if there's ever a fire in our house and I'm stuck in my room? And so what did we, we came up with a plan, right? We looked around his room and said, here are the things that you can use to break a window, right? But don't do that unless you need to, right? And we came up with a plan because we know that these moments can happen where we face threats, where we, th- where we face peril, and we need to have a plan in order to know how we can save ourselves, right? That's, that's the human impulse. It's that survival instinct, right? That I'm going to face some sort of threat and some sort of challenge, and I, I want to know what I can do, what plan I can have to get me out of that threat. Now, the reason I bring that up to you is because so much of our discussion through the armor God has been about preparation, right? How do you prepare yourself? But a lot of times we think about that idea of preparation with this series of things that we can wear, right? Things that we adorn ourselves with. And there's obviously a lot of truth to that when you're talking about the armor of God. But today's conversation, I think, takes us further than just what am I putting on? What am I wearing? But what is my plan? What is the plan for this inevitable conflict with evil, right? And that is very important, right? Because we want to know how are we going to engage in this fight against evil? And what that's going to lead us to is an understanding of salvation, right? How is it that we escape from the life-threatening moments that we often encounter? See, when you you begin to go beyond the momentary threats of an incident, an accident, a natural disaster, and you just start thinking about life itself, right? The question that I think all of us begin to ask is, what will save me, right? What, What will lead me out of these moments of peril and danger. And what we're going to be able to to find comfort in, I hope for all of us this morning, is a reminder that it's not what we can do. It's not that we save ourselves, but that the Lord is our salvation. All right, so I want us to take a look at that by really zeroing in on that term. You heard Kevin say it is somewhat complex. And so the way that I want to consider it today is to recognize the impulse to find a plan that's going to save us and consider some options this morning, right? Just fundamentally, as humans, what are some of the options that we use to consider this? Now, before we get to a consideration of some of those options of saving, we need to first really kind of deal with the question of what kind of peril or danger are we in, right? So when you look at the definition for the word salvation, that's essentially what it means, to to rescue from danger, to save from peril. And so if we're really going to be able to receive it, we need to first think, okay, well, what danger, what peril are we talking about? Because there there is some people out there, there are some people out there that would maybe argue that humanity itself is really not in any danger, that the world is good and you don't have anything to worry about. That might be a philosophy for some people out there. I've just never met anybody that's thought that. As a former missions pastor, I've traveled to numerous places in the world, numerous cultures, several different continents, and what I've never had to convince anybody of is that the world is broken, and it's filled with all sorts of pain and misery and grief and suffering, right? So when you think about the threats that we encounter, sometimes it is just the 
physical threat of violence, of corruption, of poverty, of disease, you name it. And all of us are aware of it. And so, so much of our life and our energy is spent to try to protect ourselves from those threats, to insulate ourselves from those dangers. Right? That's why we build shelters and have security with our finances. These are all the things that we try to do to protect ourselves from these threats because we know they're out there. And that at a moment's notice, our comfort and our security could be threatened. Right? But now the common denominator with the human experience it's not just that we have the threats of disease or violence or poverty, all these different things, but the real threat is what? Death. No one's been able to escape it. And we all know it's there. Every single one of us, which is what leads the human heart to say, what's the meaning to this life? What happens after you die? And we all try to figure out some sort of answer to that threat. Now, when you combine those two things, the certainty that life is temporary and finite and that death is going to be confronted with all the additional dangers and threats that can exist in this life that at a moment's notice can rob you of comfort and security, that becomes a very troubling and unsettling reality that we all begin to wrestle with. It begins to disrupt the notion of peace. What in the world do I do with a life like this that's filled with so much peril? Right, that's step one, is admitting that there are these threats, that there are these concerns, and we all are looking for something to save us from it. Right, so once we admit that, and we can confess and acknowledge those threats exist, and our desire to find some form of answer, some form of a plan of how we might be able to save ourselves from these dangers, from this unfortunate reality, we have numerous options. And that's kind of what I want us to consider today, right? What, what, are the, what are the plans that are available to you, right? We can all face different challenges and threats. I can prepare my home for a fire or for a burglar or whatever. It doesn't mean it's a good plan, right? So there are a lot of different options, a lot of different answers that are out there of how we can manage and deal with these threats, but what are the good ones? And so I want us to consider for a moment some of those options. One option that people begin to wrestle with when they consider the threats that, that exist, the peril of human existence, is to first start with the conclusion that there really is no God. There is no higher power. And so any sort of answer, any sort of saving is going to have to come from within. Leave it to chance, leave it to randomness, leave it to the universe, leave it to humanity, right? That, that that's going to be where I find my hope. That's going to be where I find some sort of answer, some sort of plan of saving, right? Now, that's a direction you can go for sure. But I will tell you that it's, it's a challenging one because as far as I can tell, there has been no true answer that humanity has been able to come up with to answer these problems of threats and death. But it's still a conclusion that people come to. One of the reasons people come to that conclusion is because of the level of brokenness and suffering that we see in the world. Right? One of the reasons people say there is no God is because when they look at so much suffering, they look at so much pain, they think, how in the world could God allow such suffering and pain to exist? And it doesn't feel right. It feels unfair, right? And so there, if there is a plan, it can't include God. Right? That's the conclusion that people make. Now, let's Let's break that down for a moment, because when we look at pain and suffering in the world and we attribute it to being unfair, 
What that tells us is that we have some sort of internal notion towards what is right and wrong, what is fair and unfair. That's really what we're saying is that, hey, this doesn't seem right. This seems unfair. Therefore, there couldn't be a God. The whole conversation is driven by our notion of fairness and unfairness. So the follow-up question has to be, where do you get that notion? Why do you have a notion of fair and unfair to begin with? Not only where does it come from, but how do you get to decide what's really fair and unfair? Especially if there is no God, right? If there is no God and we have, are all able to acknowledge that we have a notion of fairness and unfairness, and that means we're having to entrust our ability, humanity's ability, to answer what is truly fair and unfair. And so what typically happens is, is we think about entering into these social contracts in society, some obviously often unstated, just kind of agreed upon. Let's all agree to treat each other with some sort of civility so that we can all limit the sort of threats that we go through. So we, we form ourselves into governments, right? Different sort of societies, and we come up with different laws, and we come up with different rules and expectations and cultural norms, right? Don't drink until you're 21. Uh, don't commit murder, don't drive over 70, right? All these different agreements that we think help provide some form of safety. But what we're really thinking is that if that's the only sort of trust that we have, if there is no God, the problem is, is that there are so many different forms of government that exist and so many different laws and understanding of what is just and unjust and that is so uh, there's so much variety in around the world. What it actually does is diminish our sense of justness and unjustness, fairness and unfairness than it does actually strengthen it. Because who's right? Which one's right? Which, if your definition of fairness is different than mine, well, then how do we know? It actually diminishes it more than anything. And here's the problem. The biggest problem with it is human history. Because what we've seen through the course of human history is that governments and institutions have evolved and developed for hundreds of years and developed a sense of rightness or justice that has privileged some and oppressed others, right? And that a lot of times the people that have been given that power are creating a system, creating a sense of justice that is good for them so that they can keep that power by the oppression of others, right? So if we want to put our trust in humanity and government and politics or whatever it is to save us and protect us, you can do, that's a choice. It does not seem like a good one to me, right? So, so that sense of fairness and unfairness that we ask ourselves the question and immediately eliminate God, it doesn't leave us with a very optimistic answer either. In fact, it feels like a very depressing option. And so let's reconsider. Well, okay, well, maybe there is a God, right? Maybe, maybe there is a God that has a plan to save us. What would that look like? Right? Well, when we begin to consider whether or not there is a God, one of the things that we need to consider is that the majority of humanity would agree that there is a God and that he has offered a plan of saving us from the plight of human existence, from the human dilemma. The problem is, is that there are many options, right? Numerous different religions and, and ideas of who that God is and what that plan might be. And so we encounter that dilemma and we encounter that situation going, okay, well, how do I make sense of the fact that there are a lot of different stories and a lot of different options of who this God is and what this plan might be? Well, one response that tends to be more common these days is, well, choose one, right? They're all gonna get you to the same place. It's this whole philosophy of like all roads lead to Rome. 
right? We're all climbing up the same mountain. We're all going to get to the top. We're just going to take different paths to get there. That, that's a common belief when we try to make sense of all the different world religions that exist today. And the reason it's common is because it's easy and because everyone wins. And who doesn't like that? You get to win. I get to win. We all get to win. And we don't really have to think about it. It's an easy, I mean, that's like hitting the easy button. Good, I like that. Everybody goes to the same place. But any serious, thoughtful theologian would not subscribe to that idea for several different reasons. Number one is it's contradictory, right? When you really begin to study what these other plans are in, in these different versions of God and what the different paths might be, none of them really promote the idea that, oh, you all get there. They almost always say, here's a right way and here's a wrong way to live. And the right way will lead you to what you, the salvation that you're looking for. The wrong way won't, right? And almost every single one of them ask for loyalty and allegiance, right? So it's, it's contradictory. The teachings themselves don't support that idea. So it seems weird to espouse to the idea that, yeah, there are all these great religious ideas out there, all these different paths, and they're all going to get you to the same place. But when you actually study them, that's not at all what they teach, right? So it, it's, it's contradictory, first of all. The second thing is that for me, it seems very illogical, right? If that's really what God was after, all roads lead to Rome, all, all different paths are going to lead to salvation. Well, why give us multiple choices that contradict one another? Why not just give us one, Right? Why, why give so many others that could create confusion and hostility and animosity and frustration and conflict right? and contradict? That doesn't make sense. Why give, why give us any? Right? Why, why even give any? It doesn't matter. Right? So it seems very irrational and illogical for me to, to imagine God choosing that path. And one of the reasons I struggle with it is because if it doesn't really matter, this is the third problem with it, then, then again, our sense of fairness and rightness vanishes. If none of it matters and all of them lead to the same place, then essentially you can do whatever you want. <laughs> it doesn't matter. And if it doesn't matter, then, then there is no sense of fair and unfair, right and wrong, good or evil. And so in that philosophy, evil goes unrestrained. And it's hard to promote an idea where this concept in this lifestyle of evil and brokenness is somehow going to be rewarded. There has to be a way to deal with evil. And if that's true, then there's got to be a right and a wrong. So it's, it's easy, much easier to say all, all roads get there. That's a good plan of salvation. Man, it doesn't feel very tenable. Doesn't feel very sustainable. So now we kind of have to go to another option to determine this plan of how saving may work for humanity. Now we, we might actually have to choose. We might actually have to evaluate what is out there and see which one makes the most sense, which one is worthy of faith. Now, we don't have time to go through an exhaustive comparison of all the different world religions. That's not my intent of today's message. So I'm going I'm to have to paint with somewhat of a broad stroke today. If you want to have those conversations, let's do it. I'd be happy to go grab coffee and we can talk in greater detail. I love that sort of conversation. But here's, here's the first thing that we have to do to begin to open ourselves up to one of these, these paths that might be revealed from a higher power, from God. The first thing that we have to do is to consult the ancient teachings and what they say. And in order to do that, we kind of have to evaluate whether or not we're actually responsive to that sort of teaching. Because a lot of times the position is, 
Well, these ancient documents, be it the Bible, be it the Quran, whatever ancient document it is that I'm gonna look for for guidance, they're outdated, they're irrelevant, they're contradictory. It'd be arrogant to assume that you could know the one way that anybody can get to heaven, right? And so it gets brushed aside as, as being kind of a, an arrogant position, right? A, a, a judgmental position. And what I would say and push back on that is, is well, when you consider the fact that for thousands of years, people have looked to these texts to guide their understanding of how to live as men, as women, guidance for children, for families, for communities, right? And have literally built their life around it. Maybe, just maybe we have something to learn from them. <laughs> maybe. Right? To me, the more arrogant position is to look upon these ancient texts that have guided societies for thousands of years and be like, nah, what do they know? Clearly, we're more enlightened today, right? So the first thing you do is you approach it with humility and understanding, right? But then you have to ask yourself, if I'm going to consider these different plans and these different paths that are out there, well, which one is really reliable? You've got to ask yourself the question of the reliability of the source, right? And there's a lot of different ways to evaluate that. And again, we don't have a time to go through a comparative analysis of each and every different one, but let me at least focus in on the scripture, Okay, because what we have seen through history and through archaeology is that the Bible is one of the most widely corroborated and accepted pieces of ancient literature known to mankind. And I'm not talking about just religious literature. I'm talking about ancient literature, all of it. In fact, I read this quote to you guys before, uh, several years ago, I believe, when we talked about the importance of Scripture. We'll talk more about that next week. But it comes from Benjamin Warfield, who had four different doctorates and worked at Princeton Theological Seminary. And he, he died several years ago. And in 1921, he was quoted as saying this, if we compare the present state of the New Testament text with that of other ancient writings, we must declare it to be marvelously correct. Such has been the care with which the New Testament has been copied, a care with which has doubtlessly grown out of the true reverence for its holy words. The New Testament is unrivaled among ancient writings and the purity of its text as actually transmitted and kept in use. This is a common belief amongst scholars. Now, what we're not saying here, what he's not arguing is that the, what, what is being said is 100% accurate. He's saying in terms of just being able to corroborate it as an ancient document, that it, that it says what it was intended to say, it's unparalleled. So if you want to study Herodotus, you want to study Shakespeare, you want to study any of these other ancient documents, they're None of them compare to the, to the corroboration that has taken place in history and archaeology to the Bible. So it's worthy of your consideration. It's a reliable thing to study, right? So you can at least acknowledge the credibility that it might bring, and you can compare that to some of the other uh, plan, plans and paths and ancient texts. But, but once you get to that point, then the question has to become the content of the message, right? What, what does it actually say. If I'm willing to admit that it's reliable and it's worth studying, what is the actual story tell me? And this has to be taken more seriously as the church. Biblical illiteracy continues to be a massive problem for Christians, right? Just this week, I came across a survey that was done by Lifeway Research that indicates 30% of Christians believe that Jesus was a good teacher, but not God. And the reason that's problematic is because that's not what the Bible teaches. And now you can believe that. I, you know, if that's what you want to believe about Jesus, that's your choice. 
But you can't believe that and take the Bible seriously. Right? The, the two don't match at all. And the reason people can fall into that is because they don't know the content of the message. This is why when we gather together in D groups, we unapologetically tell you, only study the scripture. You're not gathering to figure out what Beth Moore wants to tell you about the scripture or Francis Chan wants to tell you about. Gather together as a community of believers and read the Bible, right? Like unapologetically, that's, that's our approach to that because we have to know what it says. And so when you begin to compare the content of the stories of these different paths of how you might be saved from this human dilemma, right? Let me give you a very crude summary, right? And it is, it's, it's, it's not fair to do it so quickly, but I, I have to for the sake of time. That when you consider all the different options that are out there, all the different plans, all the different paths, all the different hopes of salvation, they all fundamentally make one essential statement that it is really how you can save yourself, how mankind gets to God. Right, so here's what rightness looks like. Go to the temple this much. Uh, pray this much. If you live good enough in this life, you'll be reincarnated in the next a step closer. If you don't, you'll be a step further. This is how you're gonna find nirvana. Here's how you're gonna find peace. All of it is about what you can do. The five pillars of Islam, you name it. It's all about what you can do to live a good enough life where maybe, maybe, you get to be saved. That's essentially what all the other plans tell you. What makes the Bible so distinctly different is that it's not how you save yourself to get to God, it's how God has saved you to bring you to him. It's a fundamentally different story. And if for no other reason than the fact that it's so unique and different, I believe that makes it that much more worthy of consideration, worthy to say, okay, well, what, what is this story like? And so now when we consider all those options, there is no God, there's, there's a God, but he gives you multiple paths, or there's all these different paths you have to choose, you, you ultimately end up finding a worthy consideration of the scripture. And, it, and, it, and it's worth looking into. And I, and I hope you understand that it, it's not just because you were born in America that you've been familiar with the Bible, right? That if you were born somewhere else, that maybe you would be sitting there having this conversation about some other ancient text. Can I remind you, the Bible is not an American Western document. It's Middle Eastern. And it has moved its way across the globe as a word of authority. People who have submitted to it because of the majesty of the fact that it is 66 different books written by more than 40 different authors over the spans of thousands of years that all point to the same plan, the same hope. So I would, I would tell you confidently, it is worthy, more than worthy of our consideration to give us some answer of how do we find saving from this human dilemma. And so let's, let's reconsider exactly what it says for a moment. Now, I recognize that much of what I'm about to recount for you is familiar to many of you, I hope. For some of you in here, it may not be familiar at all. But whether it's familiar or unfamiliar, it is the bedrock of our existence as believers. It is the anchor for us in this battle. And so it, it is 
more than worthwhile for all of us to consider the essence of what it says. So you open up the pages of the Bible and the first thing you find out is there is a creator. Good. We've already talked about that. How that seems to make reasonable sense. There is a creator that is out there and he is good. The next thing you discover is what? The world's broken. There's a curse. Good. That makes sense too. We've already talked about that. We've seen this brokenness. We've seen all the problems that exist around us. We've seen this human dilemma. So now we're getting an understanding as to why it exists and why it creates a separation from God. But then we keep reading. And what do we begin to discover? Is that as humanity lives in this this cursed world, God's plan is to call for himself a people, to, to reunite with them. But because we live in this cursed existence, there's still heartache, there's still oppression, there's still bondage. And so he sees his people caught up in that bondage, caught up in that slavery. And what does he tell them? I hear your cry for mercy. We have a creator that hears. And so what does he do? He saves them from the hands of Pharaoh. He leads them out of that oppression and into his rest, into his promise. And he begins to establish a kingdom according to his plan, a people all his own. But again, that broken and wayward heart begins to drift and they desire their own interpretation of what is right and fair and they ask for a king. And they begin to drift astray and the more and more they drift, the more and more the separation occurs until it leads to exile and these people are scattered all over the globe. And so God sends prophets and reminds them, I haven't changed my plan. I'm still gonna form for myself a kingdom. And this oppression that you're under, right? This this yoke that you carry, this bar across your shoulders, the rod of your oppressor, I'm gonna break it because I'm gonna send you a son. I'm gonna give you a child. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of peace and of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will sit on David's throne, establishing and upholding it with righteousness and justice forever. And so people begin to wait with bated breath when will this Messiah come? When will this plan of salvation reveal itself? Even the angels longed to look into these things. And then one night, one night in Bethlehem, the angels declared glory to God and the highest peace on earth as a newborn baby took its first breath. And this child grew into a man and they called him Jesus. And he went from town to town and village to village saying, repent for the kingdom of God of heaven is near and healed and he taught and he comforted and he was willing to sacrifice himself to the point of death on the cross and he was laid in a tomb and three days later the whispers and the rumors that began to tour 
to the hearts and souls of men and women was that he is not here, he is alive. And his followers began to actually touch his scars and put their hands in his side as he appeared to them time and time again. And it became clear that Jesus was indeed this long-awaited Messiah, this Savior who had defeated not foreign armies and enemies, but the grave itself. And so the message that became crystallized, that began to move from generation to the next, was that if you confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you would be saved. But it doesn't stop there, does it? No, because we know that that's not the fullness of what Christ had accomplished, that this kingdom is still on its way, right? That there is a day that we all still anticipate. Now, we now know who this Savior is. The day that we anticipate is the day when we will see a great multitude from every tongue, tribe, and nation that will gather around his throne and declare salvation belongs to our God. We will see a holy city, that comes and makes all things new. We will be his people and God will be our God and he will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more suffering. We will be with him forever. Lord Jesus, come quickly. That's the plan. Do you believe it? Do you wear it? as you engage in this battle. See, Paul describes it as a helmet. Now, we know a helmet is essential in war. Is it not? What soldier wants to go to battle without a helmet? Think about what that does to you, right? When, when you're engaging in conflict, when you're engaging in some sort of physical fight without a helmet, you're gonna be timid, you're gonna be reactive, you're, you're gonna be hesitant. But when you have that protection, man, you fight differently. And so part of what Paul is trying to say is that by understanding God's plan, you fight differently. You have the courage. You, you have the passion. You have the assurance that you can engage in this conflict with evil as it stands now because you're not living for this life. You're living for the life that is to come. And you can be assured it is coming without delay that changes your whole mindset. And so with us being mindful of God's plan of salvation, we fight differently. What does that look like? It looks like repentance for one, right? That all of a sudden, everything about our life does not reflect a life of self-gratification, self-indulgence, self-preservation, right? Let, let me be fearful of all these threats and all these conflicts that might exist in this world. I'm gonna turn from that. And I'm gonna turn to a life that says, Jesus is Lord. And I believe in the hope of the holy city and the new kingdom. And so I'm going to live a life that he wants me to live, a life of self-sacrifice, a life of self-denial, a life of radical and unyielding love for the neighbor. I'm going to adopt. I'm going to feed the hungry. I'm going to visit the prisoner. I'm going to go and make other people aware of the hope that they have in Jesus Christ. That's how we fight. The other thing that this does for us by understanding that it's a helmet of salvation is that the helmet was often used in the realm of identity, right? You know, you've seen those Roman helmets. They had those plumes, those crests that were on top of it. And a lot of that was, was there to help distinguish rank, 
right? Where somebody felt, it was a mark of identity. And so the other thing that should give us assurance when we consider God's plan of salvation with Christ Jesus is that it changes our very fundamental understanding of who we are and who we belong to. And so I don't know how you define yourself today. I don't know how it is that you shaped your identity. Listen, your job does not determine who you are. Your successes and your failures does not determine who you are. Your family history of brokenness and all the wounds that it may have created along the way does not define who you are. Your identity is solely wrapped up in the idea that God's great love for you has shown you that he has come along your side to save you so that he can call you his own. You are a son and a daughter of Christ the King. That's your identity. And that's what it means to to know this salvation, to wear it as a helmet. It changes how we live. It changes our very understanding of our identity. So let me me close with this. Here's the, the greatest part about this passage, and it's so hard to see based on how it's translated. It says, take the helmet of salvation. Now, when we see that, we think what it means to take. You reach out and you grab. But the reality is, is that it actually means receive. (laughs) Receive the helmet of salvation. See, the way that you would adorn yourself with armor is that at this point in time, the the order that you put everything on, uh, if you were holding your shield of faith, you, you didn't have the ability to just put it all on for yourself. And so there was always an armor bearer or an assistant that was there ready to hand over your helmet. So the only way you actually got to put on your helmet was if you received it. There is a fundamental shift in everything that we've been talking about, the armor of God now in verse 17. Everything prior to this moment has insinuated some form of human effort to understand truth, to to fight for justice or righteousness, to to have your feet fitted and prepared with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, to have faith. All those things speak to some form of human effort. Salvation is a gift. Receive it. I think about all the different things that that we do in my home for birthdays and my kids, it doesn't matter what we have planned for that day, right? On their birthday, the very first thing they wanna do is open a gift, right? And and as a parent, our goal is that they open a gift and immediately wanna start playing with it. Like it's always kind of hard to seem like, oh, cool, you know, and just go to something else. And I wonder how many of us are out there today in the hope And the gift of salvation is sitting there and we're just walking right by it. Failing to receive it and let it change us the way that it was designed to change us. And so what does that look like? Well, can I tell you, it's more than just praying a prayer and walking down an aisle and getting baptized. It is a daily decision to wake up and in your heart, soul, and mind, and know that today, I don't live for this world, I live for the world that is to come. This world has no power, has no hold over me. I receive God's plan of saving my heart, my soul. That's where I put my hope. Let me me give you an example. What For me, as I've reflected upon it this week, I think receiving the hope of salvation is truly understanding the power of that prayer Lord Jesus, come quickly. You ever really wrestled with the significance of that prayer? 
of what it means for us to trust and really know that only God saves. 2011 was a hard year for us. And nothing compared to 2020. But it was still hard. And my son, my oldest son, was not quite yet a year old. And I remember being so overwhelmed by all the peril, danger, threat, hardship, whatever it was, just the harshness of life. It was just overwhelming. And I was getting my son ready for bed one night. And I was looking at him, not even a year old, in all of his innocence, overwhelmed with my love for him. And it was the first time it really crystallized my mind where I thought, I don't want him to grow up in a world that has this much pain. I hate that he has to grow up in a world where there's murder, where there's sickness, where there's destruction. I hate it. And I'll never forget that moment, sitting there looking at him and prayed in my heart for the first time, really meaning it, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And that's the posture the church should carry. And when we look out at this world around us, y'all, and we are bombarded with all the news, all the stories, all the reminders of the human dilemma, the problem of pain, the problem of peril, the problem of suffering. We got pandemics, we got riots, we got corruption, we got poverty, we got war, you name it. And if there should ever be a time for the church to find an anchor in the hope of God's plan, it's now. Where we say our hope is not in, in some new president. It's not in some new legislation. It's not in a vaccine. It's not in an, a flourishing economy or all the different things that are giving us angst. Our hope is in the holy city. And so our desire, our receiving of this gift is to walk with a confident prayer that says, Lord Jesus, come quickly, make all things new. And so in order to crystallize that for us this morning, I'm going to read one last passage of scripture that to me, I was reading this past week and just to me so perfectly describes where we are. And it brings a powerful reminder that it's really not us that save ourselves, that the Lord is our salvation. As I read through these words, I just want you to reflect upon them because I think they so perfectly picture where we are. If I could, could have had time to flash up pictures of all the different news stories and all the different concerns that seem to just flood our stories and our minds and our consciences today, I would have done it. Because it, to me, it just describes it so well. Isaiah 59 says this, So justice is far from us, and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like people without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead. We all growl like bears. We moan mournfully like doves. We look for justice, but find none. For deliverance, but it is far away. For our offenses are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities, rebellion, and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on our God, inciting revolt and oppression, uttering lies in our hearts that we've conceived. So justice is driven back. Righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled 
in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him. His own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to what they have done, so will he repay wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands for their due. From the west, people will fear the name of the Lord. And from the rising of the sun, they will revere his glory. For he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. But as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you, church, will not depart from you. And my words that I've put in your mouth will always be on your lips, on the lips of your children and on the lips of their descendants from this time on forever. Let our lips always declare the praises of our God for who is like him. The Lord is truly our salvation. Let's pray. Father, save us. <laughs> I know that there are many of us in here today that come with a burden, come with a concern, a worry, that we need to surrender to you. And so, Father, for all of us, whatever that may be, however we may define those moments and define those concerns, God, I pray that each and every person that's here, not just in this room, but those at home, would be able to surrender to you. And ask for your mighty hand to save. God, if we're trapped by sin, if we're trapped by despair, if we're trapped by temptation, by disease or sickness, trapped by hate, trapped by all the different things that can exist, God, save us and set us free. Let us fully know and understand the plan that you have fully laid bare in Christ Jesus. May we declare him as the Lord. May we find confidence in knowing that you have not asked us to fight for ourselves, but you have fought on our behalf. You have redeemed, you have reconciled, you have restored, you have saved. And so may your spirit forever be on our hearts. Your praise forever be on our lips. May we teach them to each other and to our children and to their children now and forevermore. For you are mighty to save. For that, Father, we are grateful. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.